0: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter.
1: I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain.
0: And we are all here on July 27th, 2017. It's hard to believe. But on this week's show, the new rules for breaking into Hollywood, what you need to know about Comic-Con, Canon's camera fail, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. (music) Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Starting with Comic-Con.
2: Yeah, so uh, Comic-Con happened last weekend in San Diego. If any of you went, that that's pretty cool. I'm jealous. But there are a few things that we can take away from San Diego's latest edition of the convention. And, you know, I actually... Was thinking about it, and it's really transformed over the past couple years into a major, like, studio blockbuster event, more than just a a gathering of the nerds um, for, like, comic books and Magic the Gathering and whatnot. There's still a healthy amount of cosplay, I'm sure, but it really serves as a platform for studios to be making announcements about these huge uh, tentpole blockbusters because, you know, they're all about superheroes. So with that in mind, we released our second annual wrap-up of Comic-Con trailers earlier this week, and uh, I found that in comparing this year's most attractive projects to last year's attractive projects, the most important takeaway is that superhero fatigue is definitely real, and studios seem to be finally taking note. While the most exciting projects to have come out of Comic-Con over the past couple years have been superhero movies, this year the list is kind of just like, uh, and that's probably because we've literally How was seen it. Like? It. Yeah. it was like <sighs> and that's probably because <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of like when you haven't eaten enough prunes this week.
2: Sure, that's uh, that's one that's one interpretation of that sound. <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> that's probably because we've literally seen all of these characters in movies before. Like the biggest characters in uh, the trailers this year are all People that we've seen in movies again and again for the past five years. The big superhero trailers were for Justice League, Thor Ragnarok, and Marvel's Defenders. All of these movies are about groups of superheroes that we've seen in other movies. Sure, Justice League has the Flash or a new Flash who's never been in a movie and that cyborg guy, but the Flash has been in a TV show already and it's a pretty popular TV show. Uh, It seems like Justice League might also be in major trouble. It was revealed earlier this week that the film is undergoing $25 million worth of reshoots and that Ben Affleck, after getting booted from the director's seat and writer's chair for what was to be his upcoming standalone Batman movie, is close to dropping out of the league entirely. So Matt Reeves of the Planet of the Apes fame is directing the new Batman movie now after he took over for Batfleck. And it's he seems really poised to erase all that remains of the Batfleck era.
1: Can I ask a question? Ben Affleck has never gotten his own Batman movie, right? He's just in like Wonder Woman for a few minutes, or like the end of Suicide Squad, but he's not like had a
2: Batman movie. He was Batman and Batman vs Superman. So, but that's, that's still like
1: only like forty percent of the letters yeah, in the title are Batman.
2: That's the closest it's come to a full Batfleck movie.
0: Wait, so now he's dropping out of Justice League totally?
2: Well, he's in Justice League the movie, but. He was supposed to be in a standalone Batman movie after that he was directing and writing, and he lost both of those duties, and it, it seems like Matt Reeves is also now trying to push him out of the starring role. Um, so, yeah, he'll be in this Justice League movie, but what it means for the rest of the franchise is kind of up in the air.
3: I have to say, I have no idea what you guys are talking about.
2: Uh, why don't you just stick to watching 20th Century Woman?
3: 28th Century Woman? <laughs>
2: I would totally go see 28th Century Woman (laughs) in the theater. That sounds great. That sounds
3: like something that would be at (laughs)
0: Comic-Con.
1: Although it sounds like it might have been written by Frank Miller and be like kind of sexist.
2: But moving on. It was also revealed that Joss Whedon will be taking the helm behind these Justice League reshoots as part of DC's ever persistent effort to make their films more light and humorous. um, Which is pretty big. I mean it seems like they're actually going to be phasing out Zack Snyder and bringing in Joss Whedon to be sort of the head of the DC Universe. Uh, Snyder dropped out of the Justice League movie after his uh, daughter committed suicide earlier this year. So pretty tragic for him. It remains to be seen what happens to the Justice League movie.
0: That's actually fascinating though because I feel like Snyder and Whedon couldn't be two more different directors that are both helming huge movies. So I wonder how that transition is going to go. Could be really positive.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that they want to make these movies as successful as Marvel. Um,
1: Also, Joss Whedon coming in, it's not like going in the complete hacky direction. Like, Joss Whedon has a voice and it's independent and he has a personality. And, like, even though he did the Avengers movies, it's not like they went for a complete no-name studio like Journeyman. They still went for someone with a personality,
2: which is a good sign, I think. So Justice League's newest trailer, which was released, was also different in the sense that it was more focused on Wonder Woman than in previous iterations. They had a trailer that came out last year at last year's Comic-Con. And there's no doubt that this is somewhat of a marketing ploy, I think, on Warner Brothers' part after the success of Wonder Woman, earlier this year, and it's also easy to speculate that much of these reshoots are being done to give Wonder Woman a more central role in the film itself, because she might be the best draw at this point for a lot of audience members. Now, we had some dude come after us on Facebook about putting Justice League so low on our rankings list. It was 7 out of 9, and then he called me a Marvel fanboy, and... That's because I put Thor Ragnarok at number three. But the truth is, I could truly give less of a shit about Marvel or DC. Thor's place atop of that list lies more in the fact that I'm a Taika Waititi fanboy. Taika Waititi is an international treasure, and if Marvel has given him the kind of creative power he deserves on Thor Ragnarok, then this could be one of the greatest all-time superhero movies.
3: That's one I will see.
2: Yeah, for sure. And it's seeming more and more like Marvel has given him this freedom. The director revealed earlier this weekend at Comic-Con that at least 80% of the film was improvised. That type of work is just simply unheard of for a Blackbuster franchise movie.
1: Uh, his Twitter is also fire if anybody wants to go check it out.
2: Yeah, it's great. It's great. And and while, uh, you know, this is unheard of in franchise movies, this is right on the money for a Taika Waititi movie. Uh, he did what we do in the shadows, had uh, a healthy hand in the Flight of the Concord movies, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, and he's bringing some of those people along with him into the Thor uh, movie. So
3: you can't forget Boy.
2: Yeah, Boy too, and Eagle versus Shark, right?
0: Yeah. So for those of you who are totally lost, long story short, this is our indie tie-in to Comic Con because Taika Watiti's history is firmly rooted in indies that we all love here, and. Uh, <clears throat> He's having a major chance with Thor and like sounds like unlike in the Star Wars franchises that we've been covering recently, he's actually getting to really go kind of his own way with it.
1: Which sounds like the perfect setup for an article tomorrow saying he's been replaced (laughs) by, I'm just saying, let's not jinx it.
2: They're both Disney. So with all that in mind, I think it's easy to say that Comic-Con's biggest draw is no longer superhero movies. It's TV. Well, really, it's not even TV, it's Netflix. TV shows held five of the nine spots on our list, and among those, Netflix had three projects. The second season of Stranger Things, which premieres in October, took the number one spot on our list, and uh, I think that The Upside Down is coming back in a big way this year.
0: I gotta say, I agreed with your choice this year. Last year, I think we had some sparring back and forth, but man, that Stranger Things trailer was the only one on the list that I got chills from. It looks amazing.
2: Yeah, I overall, I wasn't honestly too impressed with what I saw out of those trailers, but uh, yeah, it was Westworld, Stranger Things, and Steven Spielberg's uh, Ready Player One, surprisingly, that looked like they were uh, definitely something that I'll check out in the future, and Thor.
0: In more industry happenings, last week we revealed the Primetime Emmy Award nominees. And by the way, after John said that The Leftovers was, quote, boned in the nominations, I started watching it this past week and I really liked it.
2: Already? Just on season one? Yeah. Cool. Stick with it.
0: I mean, I liked season one. I thought it was fascinating. Good. Um, so this week, the 38th News and Docs Emmy contenders were announced, and this grouping's always somewhat more relevant to indie filmmakers, just because docs are, like, more likely to be independently made. Of course, PBS weighs in again with the most nominations, but interestingly, the streaming services didn't figure in nearly as heavily here as they did in the primetime Emmys, with Netflix not even placing in the top ten in terms of number of nominations. We want to send some congrats to our friend Jonathan Goodman-Levitt, who actually volunteer bartended our Tribeca party last year, on his nomination as producer for Among the Believers in the Outstanding Politics and Government Documentary category, and my fellow Film Fatal, who actually has her production offices in our building here, Malika Zuali-Worl, and her co-director David Osit, for having their doc Thank You for Playing, recognized in the Outstanding Arts and Culture documentary category. Several films we covered this past year are among the nominees, like Nanfu Wang's Hooligan Sparrow and Warner Herzog's Into the Inferno, and Ben Solomon from The New York Times, who we had on one of our VR podcasts, was nominated for his VR doc, The Fight for Fallujah, in the Outstanding New Approaches category. So we will link to all of those pieces in the podcast post.
3: Congrats, everybody. If you've been reading the industry trades, you might be aware of the fact that this summer, has henceforth been crowned the summer the Hollywood blockbuster died. A slew of articles have been proclaiming this from the peaks of Hollywood Hills, the latest of which, from The Hollywood Reporter, is entitled Hollywood and Film Financiers, A Torrid Love Affair Hits a Rocky Road, and details the recent breakdown of slate deals between major studios and financiers who are losing faith in the blockbuster machine. Yesterday, Zach Barron of GQ published an article about Hollywood's new frontier called The New Rules for Making It in Hollywood. Although this article is aimed at young actors hoping to break into the business, it actually has industry-wide implications, not only for both aspiring and working directors about how to get their films seen, but also for how and where to find actors in today's complex platform-based landscape. At the top of the article, Maury Morio, one of the heads of Innovative Artists Agency, was quoted saying, I've been a talent agent now for almost 30 years. The first 20 were very traditional. you looked for actors in a school and you guided them in classes and programs. You got your headshot and you sent them out in a traditional route. There isn't that traditional route anymore. Through the lens of some up-and-coming and already successful actors, the writer of the piece Baron, takes us through the sea changes flooding Los Angeles and beyond and distills it into some important points that we should all take heed of as independent filmmakers. His first point is called, you may someday work for something called Crackle. Beryl points out that pilot season is dead. Instead, it's a constant barrage of calls from outlets that you didn't even know existed. So as an indie filmmaker or aspiring TV director, you're going to have to bark up some pretty exotic sounding trees. Beryl's second point is that social media is a shortcut. He interviews young actors who have paved their way to success with YouTube, Vine, and other social media platforms in what one of them calls reverse engineering Hollywood. Jake Paul says, there's so many good looking people, but the X factor now is social media. Why would anyone cast someone with the same acting capabilities who doesn't have social media followers? They're not going to make as much money. Another young actor named Paris Barelk said something that happened to her at an audition recently is kind of becoming the new normal. Quote, I walked in and did my slate and then they stopped me and they said, wait, how many followers do you have on Instagram? And I was like, I don't know, 1.2 million? by the way, very casual number of followers. And then they were like, quote, okay, can we do the slate again, but can you just say that at the end? I think it was an independent film that was looking for funds or something because people with followers will bring those funds in, end quote. So this doesn't just apply to studio and blockbusters. Even indie filmmakers are looking for um, proven commodities, really, on social media to cast in their films. Which kind of brings us to Barron's next point. What he calls constantly reminding people you exist, is now part of the job. In the days of yore, scarcity was a commodity. A director would put out a film every five or ten years, and the mystique would sometimes be enough to get people flocking to the theater. Nowadays, whether you're an actor, producer, or director, you're tasked with staying relevant. Actor Keith Powers says, quote, It's no longer enough just to act and be part of great projects. You have to do it constantly— it's why so many actors are moving towards TV, not just because they're following the creative talents who increasingly work there, but also because TV puts them on screens consistently in a way that, say, an indie movie that shows at Sundance and then a few times in New York and L.A., does not. Actors, like everyone else now, have brands to consider and maintain. That's exhausting. End quote. The next point is something we've discussed ad nauseum here on Indie Film Weekly, which is that Netflix is the biggest thing currently out there. I don't think we need to explain why Barron found that actors saw Netflix as their holy grail, so we're going to move on to the next point. Barron ends the article by hammering down the two last and admittedly hopeful points. With the first, he says, When Hollywood won't cast you, find someone else who will. Harry Shum Jr., an Asian-American actor, said that he's noticed his friends getting roles on alternative channels and platforms that have uncovered audiences that producers and studios used to ignore or were not even aware of. Of course, this has turned out to be great for actors who might actually look like those audiences. Shum Jr. says, Being a minority, all my friends used to struggle so much for the longest time and only get certain roles. Now I'm starting to see them get all these different roles, and main character roles nonetheless, on platforms that you might not have heard of, but they're working with huge name producers and directors. Barron's last point is even more encouraging. It's that the audience for your dream project is out there, and now you can find it. Barron interviewed Antoinette Robertson of Netflix's Dear White People as a prime example of someone involved in a show that caters to a demographic that was largely ignored by studios and television until now. Robertson says that because streaming services like Netflix have such advanced data on their viewers, they're able to ensure that the right people see the content they crave, which in turn allows Netflix to give filmmakers much more creative control. If you know exactly who you're speaking to, you don't have to try to please everyone. And that's music to any indie filmmakers ears thanks emily so this is the point of the show at which we often say goodbye to people who've
0: left us too soon but today's obit is for youtube's video editor the company quietly announced its demise earlier this week of course anyone listening to this podcast is likely using a more professional editing tool but the youtube editor was handy for the occasional trim or title If you did use the tool, the company advises that you wrap up your projects by September 20th, its official end date, and that you can use Google Takeout to grab your original assets if you want to use them in a new video.
1: Which is the perfect transition to gear news this week, continuing the theme of killing things we forgot existed (laughs) that started with the death of Google YouTube's edit tools is also Adobe killing Flash. So Flash is totally one of the bastions of the early Internet. And it's, like, been years since you could watch Flash on any mobile device. I don't think you could ever watch Flash on an iPhone at all. Um, And for the longest time, YouTube and Vimeo have both gone whole hog to HTML5, so you're not even regularly watching Flash there anymore. There's still a lot of legacy Flash content out there. CBS still runs a lot of Flash. And every once in a while, you still need to load that Flash player. However, Adobe has announced that after 2020... They will no longer support or develop the player, which means one day you'll have a computer that's not going to be able to install any version of the Flash player, and you're not going to be able to watch amazing 90s animations anymore.
3: And you'll no longer have to update your Flash player ever again.
1: Yeah, that is actually the best part of this whole story, is every single time I go to play Flash, I feel like I have to download a new file, and I don't want to do that anymore. However, as a reminder, filmmakers, if you made a bunch of cool stuff and you put it up on the Internet in flash format, pretty soon no one will be able to see it. So if you can, download it now and convert it to something else like two six four to, you know, ensure that your amazing 2002 political commentary videos about how George W. Bush was the worst president that America would ever have can be saved into the future. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. Remember them? Up next, Canon's 6D Mark II was already shaping up to be a disappointment for filmmakers, since it's like clearly targeted at photographers and limits their video to 1080p, which is strange and ridiculous in 2017. However, the news has gotten worse for Canon, since new tests from photons to photos show that the 6D Mark II actually performs worse than the 80D, a camera that costs half as much. The 60 Mark II uses a newly designed sensor which focuses on low light sensitivity, but apparently that's come with a sacrifice to dynamic range at like low to normal ISOs. Canon has made it very clear. They make photo products and video products and as much as filmmakers want to get their hands on those sweet $2,000 still cameras and use them for video, Canon would really rather we spend $5,000 on their video products. It seems like filmmakers are going to have to save up uh, and get the C200, which is coming this fall and should answer everything we are looking for, although not for the $2,000 of the 60 Mark II. Canon's major rival Nikon has announced their new D850, which they claim will exceed expectations. And then they've released an 8K time-lapse built from stills to show off the camera, which does look pretty good. However, exceed expectations is an odd marketing phrase, at least to filmmakers' ears, because, like... Nikon is super popular in the still world, but they basically have no market in the video world. So, like, I have no expectations
0: for them. Well, it will definitely exceed those.
1: It will definitely exceed those. But I have one expectation for any video camera in 2017, which is 4K. 4K. Nikon, you have now promised that you will exceed my bare minimum expectations, which means you should be delivering 6K video in the D850. Will it happen? Almost definitely not. But if you want to exceed my expectations, that's how you can do it. Um, finally, there's an update from Rode with their new VideoMic Pro Plus, which is an upgrade of the original VideoMic. If you're shooting with a DSLR, you already know the audio is generally nearly unusable, and we almost always have to mount a second mic on top, even when we're running dual system, to get like nice quality backup audio on the camera. The original video mic was a really popular option, but the new Plus has what I consider to be, like, the coolest new feature, auto-off. You turn off the camera, it turns off the microphone. I don't know why, but turning both off seems like an insane hassle, and I'm always—I wrote people, but I'm just going to say it— I'm always forgetting to also turn off the microphone. This
0: has happened to me a million times. Why doesn't every mic function with an auto off? When you turn your camera off, the mic doesn't turn off. So it's not that it's recording anything because the camera's off. It's It's just just running down the battery.
1: Yeah, it's just sending an audio signal into the camera that nothing is being recorded. And then you turn the camera back on and you're like, why are my audio levels so low? And then you're like, oh, because I left the mic on and now the battery is dead and I'm dumb. (laughs) So, Rode has come out with a handy new feature, which turns the mic off for you when you turn the camera off. Rode, way to go. Please, everyone copy this as fast as possible. But until they do, get it from the VideoMic Pro from Rode.
0: And Charles, we've got an Ask No Film School question for you, too. Abdelrahim Katab has asked us, I often hear the terms offline and online editing. What does it stand for, and what's the difference between the two? Are there, like, specific softwares for offline and others for online?
1: Abdelrahim, that is a great question. And it goes back to, like, one of my biggest frustrations in the modern world, which is words that get used inconsistently for more than one thing.
0: I feel like we need a jingle. Words for more than one thing. (laughs) That's a pretty
1: good start at a jingle. Homonyms. (laughs) And and that's that's not a good start. Catchy. (laughs) Great jingle. It's a homonym. Well, anyway, so... The word online is widely used by people outside of the film industry to mean on the internet. So, like, if you're a filmmaker and you're talking about making an online video, you're generally talking about taking your high-res file and compressing it to stream it online easily over low-bandwidth internet connections. Any internet connection is going to be way slower than, like, Firewire or Thunderbolt, so you need it to be a smaller file so that it can stream. So, frequently, you hear people talking about, like, An online video, which is different than the way we use the word online in the film industry, which drives me nuts because people in the film industry also use the Internet. So film industry people both have to use it as a film industry term and an Internet term. So what online means within the film industry or specifically within post is the final step in the editing process. It's the place where you take all of the footage that you've shot at a variety of resolutions, and you bring it into your editing system at full resolution. Basically, from the beginning of time, camera formats have always seemed to outpace our ability to edit them. So like today, in 2017, you can shoot 8K Red Raw files on your brand new Helium, and you're going to be very frustrated if you try and edit your whole movie in Premiere on your MacBook Pro at 8K. You could do it, technically, but files are going to take forever to load. Playback's going to stutter. Audio's going to cut out. It's going to be really annoying. So we work with low-resolution copies of the file, which computers can easily handle. This has been going on since the 1980s, before the Internet, with low-res files, which we would today sometimes call proxies or transcodes. They were originally called offline clips. And then the full-res version, which we might call, like, the RAW today, was the online version because you were bringing it online into your computer. So, hearing someone say, I'll ingest it low res, then cut it offline, and then do an online is similar to something like someone saying, We shot Red Raw, but we transcoded it to ProRes LT, then we cut the ProRes LT, then we used Resolve to reconnect to the master files. So, that's the distinction between offline and online editors. More confusion comes in. Because for a long time, different software was used for each. Right. But nowadays we don't really think of it the same way. Like for the longest time, like Avid was like your offline editor and then you took it into Symphony for your online. Um, Premiere, Final Cut, these were like offline editors and then you'd use something like Flame for your online. But nowadays it's more of a hardware distinction than a software distinction. Like you can online In Premiere, you can online in Resolve, you can online in Media Composer, but you have to have like a super powerful graphics card and a big hard drive and a lot of memory to deal with all those online files. So like for instance, I cut with low-res ProRes proxies every day in my laptop in DaVinci Resolve, even though DaVinci Resolve is the same piece of software that like on a super powerful desktop computer I could use to online. You could online in a laptop. And I actually did a whole feature, Red Raw on a laptop once, which, which was nuts. But it's going to be slower. You're going to have longer renders. The machine's going to overheat a lot. So you want to try and avoid it. There are a few dedicated online tools still out there, like Flame, which have more of an FX tool set. But you don't tend to run into them a lot in the indie world. The last confusing thing to remember about all this is that online, in a doc workflow, also usually means the step where you're going back and licensing footage to get the highest quality master. So, for instance, you're working on a documentary and you're pulling in all this stock footage of, like, this amazing concert in the 70s and you grab a shot from one YouTube clip and you grab a shot from another and they all have watermarks on them. During the online, you're usually working with your producer to go to the archival house to pay for rights for it, to get the highest quality thing. So, onlining also has some implication of, like, getting the permission it's not considered part of the onliners job, but by the quote unquote online step, you should be sourcing the rights on all of your footage and making sure you're bringing it in, um, which is something that the editor and the producer will do together. So traditionally, quote unquote, offline editing is like the more creative job involving making decisions about which take to use and when to cut to close up and how to handle pacing and point of view. While online editing is the more technical job, getting the project to the best possible format, the online editor works really closely with the colorist and the VFX team. Sometimes nowadays, the online editor and the colorist are the same person, and they even do some of the VFX. Um, We keep thinking, man, computers are going to get faster, and this will all go away. But not only are computers not getting faster, like the 2013 MacBook Pro is faster than the 2016 MacBook Pro, which is nuts. But formats keep getting bigger. We're shooting 8K now out of the new Helium, 6K from the Alexa 65, and I guarantee in 2020 we're going to be shooting 12K out of something. So offline, online, proxy raw workflow is sticking around.
3: Love the question. Love the answer. Thanks, Abdelrahim. Good luck. On to some movies opening in theaters and on VOD this week. Um, I've got a very exciting announcement About a project that's coming to Netflix on August 1st. Um, It was created and produced respectively by my friends Sumitri Kashari and Becky Stern. It premiered originally at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2016 as an immersive installation project projected onto eight 30 foot tall screens in a 360 degree formation at Gotham Hall in New York. And it was one of the coolest immersive experiences I've been to in a very long time. What's it called, Emily? It's called The Bomb. Although the Netflix experience doesn't stand to be quite as all-encompassing, the bomb is really more important to watch than ever. After all, more than 15,000 nuclear weapons currently exist. And in case you didn't know, 90% are owned by the U.S. and Russia collectively. We all know about the tension between these two countries, and they are 20 times more powerful than those dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Jeez! Just one explosion, accidental or otherwise, could obliterate humanity as we know it. So perhaps The Bomb is the most important experimental documentary that you should watch on Netflix this week, and it awakens us to this harsh reality. When I spoke to Kashari last year, she told me she wanted to create a deeper and more visceral experience of nuclear weapons, and that's exactly what she did. Also coming to Netflix is The Founder um, on August 2nd. Michael Keaton was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of Ray Kroc, a salesman who turned Two Brothers innovative fast food eatery McDonald's into one of the biggest restaurant businesses in the world with a combination of ambition, persistence and ruthlessness. The film was directed by John Lee Hancock and also stars former No Film School podcast guests Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch as the McDonald's brothers.
2: And coming to theaters on July 28th is Brigsby Bear. I've talked about this movie a few times on the podcast already, I caught it back at Sundance in January, and now that I'm a few months out, I can easily say it was my favorite movie I saw there, and I will definitely be going to see it again. It stars Kyle Mooney, Mark Hamill, Claire Danes, Greg Kinnear, and Andy Samberg, and is directed by SNL contributor Dave McCary. While the film does feature a lot of SNL present and former members, it is miles above anything recently put out by the show in quality. It's more in line with Mooney and McCary's sketch comedy group, Good Neighbor, who have been shooting videos together since they were in middle school. It's really not even a typical comedy. The story follows a young man's first experiences in society after being freed from the kidnappers he thought were his parents who held him underground. He copes with the challenges of his introduction into society by making a movie of the only TV show he has ever known, one his fake parents created specifically for him. It's really good. It's really weird very creative um and if it wasn't for this movie i would have never met mark hamill so thank you brigsby bear and also coming out tomorrow is atomic blonde this is an action movie which premiered earlier in the year at south by southwest and it's being heralded as the female driven john wick of course it draws an obvious comparison here because the director david leach also directed the first john wick movie Charlize theron supposedly kicks even more ass than keanu reeves did if that's actually possible The film also stars James McAvoy and John Goodman. Theron plays an undercover MI6 agent who is sent to Berlin during the Cold War to investigate the murder of a fellow agent and recover a missing list of double agents.
0: Also coming to theaters on Friday is an Inconvenient Sequel. If you don't believe in climate change, then boy do we have a movie for you. A decade after an Inconvenient Truth brought climate change into the heart of popular culture comes the follow-up that shows just how close we are to a real energy revolution. Like its predecessor, this documentary sequel also stars Al Gore. You can see the movie in theaters for free if you're 18 or under and a Snapchat user. Starting this week, you'll see a promotion in your Snapchat feed and be able to swipe up to redeem a code good for two tickets that will be active for 30 days. Pretty sweet promotion.
2: I'd go. Nine years ago.
0: (laughs) And also on Friday, yet another Sundance Darling is set to come out. It's the incredible Jessica James, which stars Jessica Williams of my favorite other podcast, Two Dope Queens, and formerly of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, as an aspiring playwright in New York who strikes up a friendship with a guy while on the rebound from a breakup. The film, which is directed by James Strauss, also stars Lakeith Stanfield, Chris O'Dowd, and Noah Wells. Williams spoke at the Women's March down Main Street back at Sundance in Park City that Emily and Oakley and I all attended. And her speech was really powerful. I remember it well. She talked about the trouble she got in once when she got C grades and she tried to convince her mom that average was OK. And her mom basically tore her a new one, saying that she shouldn't ever aspire to average. So given that Williams started on The Daily Show at age 22 and everything she's done professionally since has definitely been above average, I would place a good bet on this movie, even though it's only her feature debut. And it must be Sundance Week at the theaters, because one of the most unique films I saw there back in January is also hitting theaters this week. The film is Joshua Z. Weinstein's Menasha, and you may remember that I had Weinstein plus the film's DP Yoni Brooke and lead actor, whose real name is also Menasha, on an interview podcast earlier this year. The episode is called How an Unlikely Yiddish Indie Became A24's First Foreign Language Acquisition, and that tells you a lot about the film right there. It's the first secular film shot in one of Brooklyn's very closed, ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, using mostly untrained actors from the community. Based on the true life story of its lead, the film portrays a widowed man who's trying to convince his traditional community that he's capable of caring for his young son, even though there's no longer a woman in the house. Particularly if you're interested in docufiction hybrids, this film is worth seeking out, and one that will likely stay on your mind long after you leave the theaters.
2: And finally... Yet another film I caught at Sundance is coming out tomorrow. Person to Person, this is a runner-up to Brigsby Bear for me, but also I think it was really one of the better films I saw throughout all of the first quarter festivals. Person to Person is interesting because it follows around several different types of characters and people as they navigate their way through life in New York City. It's not a documentary, it's a narrative. But Dustin Guy Deffa directs a fantastic ensemble of actors, and the ensemble story works well in large part due to the strength of the characters he has written. Michael Sarah plays the hot headed reporter to Abby Jacobson's timid first timer as they scour the city for clues to a murder. Tavi Gevinson plays a teenager who questions just about every aspect of life, but it's the relatively unknown Benny Coopersmith and George Sample III who really seal the show. They play a pair of friends whose individual dysfunctions make them perhaps the most functional roommates in the history of Tenancy. Cooper Smith plays a record collector who's scammed out of an awesome find, and Sample III plays an unmotivated tech Luddite who is hunted down for unwittingly posting pictures of his ex-girlfriend online. Naked pictures, by the way. Woo woo! This movie is shot on Super 16 film, and it has a distinct 70s nostalgia attached to it, which actually led to some challenges for Deffa. When I sat down with him at Sundance, he remarked, that stuff was so influential and I can't get away from it. I'm trying to figure out how to shoot Super 16 and not have a 70s kind of vibe. I'm sort of worried that it's impossible to get around it.
0: I'll also mention that the film was shot by DP Ashley Connor, who we've had on the podcast when she shot the movie Flames at Tribeca earlier this year, and she is super talented, so I'm excited to see the movie.
3: Take it away, Emily. We've got some exciting opportunities coming up this week. The first is a BBC World Service and Sundance Institute podcast grant called Neighbors, and it's got a deadline of July 31st. The BBC and Sundance Institute are collaborating on a new nonfiction radio podcast series to launch in 2018, and they want to hear from you. They're seeking creative and ambitious storytelling on the theme of Neighbors. Documentary storytellers are invited to submit basic proposals for English-language audio episodes of 30 or 60 minutes with accompanying 2-4 to minute visual stories, such as short films or animations. Should your idea be selected, the rewards are bountiful. Should your idea be selected for production, the rewards are bountiful with budgets of up to $10,000 for 30-minute programs and almost $17,000 for 60-minute programs. Then we've got the 14th annual Paley Doc Pitch competition, with the regular deadline on July 28th. The program was initially launched to engage and promote emerging nonfiction filmmakers seeking support for their unfinished feature-length films, and it promises a sizable prize, which is that the winning submission will receive a $5,000 grant from A&E Indie Films. The live pitch event will take place at a workshop and finale event on Monday, November 6th at the Paley Center in New York City. And to enter, applicants must submit no more than 10 minutes of footage from an unfinished or work-in-progress feature-length doc.
2: And now moving on to festival deadlines, the Nashville Film Festival has a deadline on July 28th. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place in Nashville from May 10th to 19th, 2018. The festival offers $65,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers with winners selected by industry power players. The winning short films in the narrative, animated, and documentary short film competitions are eligible for Academy Award consideration and it's one of the top 100 reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. The Oaxaca Film Festival has their extended deadline on July 31st. This is the last chance to submit. It takes place October 6th to the 13th in Oaxaca, Mexico, and most festivals charge more money as the entry deadlines progress, but it's still only $14 to submit your film to this one, so you should do it. See, Who wouldn't want to go to beautiful Mexico, Emily? (laughs) Yes, me. Movie Maker Magazine, the magazine for movie makers, calls it one of the top 50 best festivals in the world.
0: Wait, really? You don't want to go to Mexico? Mexico rules. Oh, no, I I
3: do want to go to Mexico.
2: Do you want to read Movie Maker Magazine? The Palm Springs International Film Festival has a deadline on August 1st. This takes place January 2nd to the 15th, 2018 in Palm Springs, California. It attracts a big draw of industry representatives and executives from Los Angeles. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival. In fact, the festival screens the largest selection of films submitted to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in the Best Foreign Language Film category.
0: Oh, I kind of want to go cover that, like it's right before Sundance, and I feel like we all deserve like a a little week in Palm Springs before trenching out into the Sundance snow. And now, for Weekly Words of Wisdom. I'm going to kick it off. Our writer V. Renee posted a video this week by a photographer called Winston Folks about the top 10 things he wished he knew when he was starting out. Now, it's his first attempt at an instructional video, so it's not perfect, but I respect that he's trying to pass on field experience to other creators just like we do. The video provides a good checklist and primer on some of the basic elements you'll want to know from a visual perspective when you're first starting out, particularly as a DP, like focal length, aperture, depth of field. It got me thinking about things I wish I had known from the get-go, and I got a little cringy thinking about mistakes I'd made early on, so I'm going to add my own word of wisdom here. In the video, Folks talks a bit about composition, mentioning the rule of thirds where you essentially make a grid out of your frame by thinking about it as separate sections, divided in thirds, both horizontally and vertically, and then strategically place items on that grid to draw viewers' eyes to different spots. And I just want to add to that by mentioning that, generally speaking, no matter how wide you're shot, people's eyes should be in the top third. So headspace looks way bigger on a big screen than in your eyepiece or your little LED. So having your character's eyes fall about a third of the way down the screen is a good rule of thumb to follow, as I learned the hard way on one of the first interviews I shot like 15 years ago that ended up looking really bad when I brought it into post. I've never made the mistake again. So we'd love to hear from you all about the top things you learned the hard way, and maybe we'll do a little series about it. It's a great tip.
2: My weekly words of wisdom come from an article that our contributor Max Winter conducted with Killing Ground DP Simon Chapman. Uh, I got the chance to interview Damian Power, the director of Killing Ground at Sundance, and I'll speak a little bit more about that later. But... They talked about not just including cool shots because they're cool, but to make sure that every shot contributes to the rules of your screenplay. Here's what Simon had to say. We didn't want to distract the audience with fancy angles, but rather keep it grounded at all times. We used only one dolly shot in the film, a very particular parallel move during a terrifying moment. It has more impact as we use the device so sparingly. It's very tempting to throw in quote-unquote cool shots just because you can, Damien and I, however, kept each other in check every day, making sure each shot helped tell the story rather than just showing off.
3: My words of wisdom this week are actually from a live stream that Mark Duplass participated in with our friend Emily Best, the founder of crowdfunding platform Seed&Spark. So if you watch Duplass give his uh, keynote speech at South by Southwest 2016, you remember that he is pretty ruthless when it comes to advice giving. He's not going to sugarcoat anything for anyone. Um, The way that he came up in the industry was he paved his own way. Um, He had help from absolutely nobody and nobody gave him money. And that's kind of what this advice centers around. Here are some quotes uh, that he that I thought were particularly pertinent from his live stream. I'm ruthlessly efficient with my time. At the core level of what we're doing here, we've made terrible and unwatchable movies for 10 years. By the way, we means him and his brother, J. Duplass. They came from a place of feeling like we needed to do everything. I didn't understand that you could collaborate and ask for help. There's an inherent humility in how we make stuff now because we made bad movies for so long. If you haven't made a good movie yet, you might have 10 bad ones in you, and please get them all out and make them cheaply. He goes on to say, I didn't have any mentors. I had to make it on my own. You should hope that someone will come to help, but your plan every single day should be that nobody's coming to help you. Nobody gives a shit about you or your movie. So figure out how to make a great movie without anybody's help. Do it on your own, in your local community, with the resources you have at hand. The caveat is that Duplass says you have to make a good movie. There are no good movies out there, so when you make a good one, someone's going to find it.
0: Well, he's certainly got opinions and a track record. I like the general gist of that, although it's a little neg. A little neggy. He's just, you know, doing real talk. And I'm about to do some real talk here on Indie Film Weekly. No, I'm not. I'm going to give a shout out. (laughs) So the Fantasia Film Fest is going on right now through August 2nd in Montreal. Quentin Tarantino has called this festival the most important and prestigious genre film festival on this continent. I don't know what the good ones on other continents are. We'll get back to you. Anyway, it's one you should note if you are a genre filmmaker. And thanks to our writer, Dylan Dempsey, we've got an interview going up this week with Ted Gagin, who not only is a publicist for the festival, but whose second feature, Mohawk, is premiering there. His first film, We Are Still Here, premiered at South by Southwest 2015 and then nabbed the number one spot on the iTunes horror charts. So he's a DIY filmmaker that we look up to, and I'm really excited about that interview.
2: And speaking about interviews, next Monday's podcast interview is a mashup of interviews I did at Sundance. One of them is with Dave McCary and Kevin Costello, the director and screenwriter from the aforementioned awesome comedy Brigsby Bear, coming out tomorrow. They discuss how making stupid little videos led to their $5 million distribution deal with Sony Pictures Classics. And the second interview is with director Damien Power of Killing Ground, which I also just mentioned. We discuss making films in Australia and how to craft unconventional timelines. Initially, I wasn't planning on releasing them because alone they were both too short for a full episode, but I really, really liked them and I'm stoked both of these movies ended up getting wide releases in July. So why not just combine them?
0: Why not? Can't wait. And I bet you all can't wait for this episode to end. (laughs) Thank you for sticking with us through this long and informative journey. And uh, in the meantime, we will link to everything we discussed in this episode in this week's podcast post. And as always, you can visit NoFilmSchool.com for lots, lots, lots more articles and resources about the craft of filmmaking. And please subscribe to this podcast, the No Film School podcast, rate us on iTunes, and of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter.
2: At Jim underscore John underscore Jim.
0: Jim underscore John. At Jim. I went to the gym. gym. I I didn't, but I should. What? (laughs) Go to the gym. Oh. Underscore John. Underscore Jim. Okay. And we're all at No Film School. (laughs) See you next week.